I'm one of those script guys because uh, you really don't want me to speak unscripted. <laughs> I don't know what comes out of my mouth sometimes. Um, thanks, Dan, for a great introduction. And uh, if a goofy grin is all it takes, you know, then that's all it takes. So, guys, practice on that goofy grin, all right? Um, man, it, it, is, it is weird for me to be right here for you, for you guys. I don't know, like, I think I maybe know 2% of all of you. <laughs> it's just weird to me. Um, and it's also incredible because, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm sure all the teachers will testify, kids keep coming back to the school, you know, like, for the exceptions like, you know, Dan, you know, you actually move on from college. <laughs> um, but man, uh, join me in prayer just one more time before we get started. Father, um, Lord, we are so grateful to be here. God, we pray. I pray during this time that we will just be centered uh, around your truth, around your words, Lord. And that you uh, will just graciously use me to encourage and to uplift uh, the student body and the staff as well. God, just uh, we pray that you for your Holy Spirit to be present, to be among us to be flowing through my words and to be present in our minds and in our hearts this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to say how much of an honor it is to be here with you all, but to be honest, I still feel a little intimidated. And that's the fact that you guys are Bible college students. <laughs> and I'm preparing a, a message or a sermon for Bible college students. And, and I've been in your seats and I've Turn those gears. Well, has he looked at the original language? What theology is he pulling this from? What books is he reading? Um, uh, but you guys all look like great people and won't be doing that to me, right? That's so um, just to continue, during my time as a student, I've learned through some hard lessons and not just Gail's doctrinal lessons, but foundational ones as well. I hope to encourage you this morning, both student and staff, with a passage and some of the things I've learned as essential during my time as a student. Turn with me into your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise must not boast in his wisdom. The mighty must not boast in his might. The rich must not boast in his riches. But the one who boasts should boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. I can't remember when it was that I first underlined this passage in my Bible. But for some time, I constantly find myself coming back to this verse in points in my life. When we consider wisdom, might, or riches by themselves, you probably won't find those things at the top of the most dangerous sin category. Wisdom, for example, is more often admired or 
connected with inspirational insights or, thought, or thoughts. Wisdom will help settle disputes and to give sound advice to those in need. But we should never boast in wisdom, no matter how wise you may become. I see might or strength as that drive or perseverance through hard trials. Might is that determination to see through an impossible force. Our movies are filled with this display of might or valor, but yet to trust in might as if you own it and not to the one giving the strength will only lead to inevitable destruction. And riches should be pretty easy. I mean, as long as you stay poor, you never have to deal with this pride. To boast in riches doesn't mean, however, that there is a certain limit to where as soon as you make this amount a year, you are automatically sinfully rich. You can be poor and still boast in your riches. It's in the boast that is the source, and as is for these three examples that are in the text. Wisdom, might, and riches become a problem as soon as you boast in them. I was born and raised in southeastern Pennsylvania, brought up, raised on a dairy farm and in a Mennonite community, and lived in the heart of the Amish uh, country. Interestingly, the Mennonites were one of the first denominations founded in the early Swiss uh, Reformations. The Anabaptist passion was to avoid a lifestyle of sin at cost. Their main verse was uh, Romans 12, 2, but specifically, don't be conformed to this world. And, they, and the Amish still hold strong to that conviction, believing that as long as they avoid the worldly sinful desires, nothing will happen. They will remain pure. Paul says in Ephesians that the thief should no longer steal, but instead do honest work with his hands and give to those in need. He also says, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial to those around them. What he's trying to say is that you can't just, or even in the text in Jeremiah specifically, is you can't just say you're not going to do something. Like, I can't just say, okay, I won't boast in wisdom. I won't boast in might. I won't boast in riches. We are prideful creatures. We have to boast in something. God's word says it's not enough to just commit to not sinning. We must replace it or redeem it instead. Just to reread Jeremiah. The wise must not, must not boast in his wisdom. The mighty must not boast in his might. The rich must not boast in his riches. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for these things I delight. Think of this truth as a student or even as a teacher. The only way to keep us from boasting in wisdom, might, or riches is to boast in the Lord. And not just in the Lord in a general sense, but specifically, boasting in our knowledge of him, of who he is. And not just of who he is, but what he does. The Lord, boasting in how the Lord delights to show faithful love, justice, and righteousness. Have we not all experienced all three of those things all the time in our daily life? With all this knowledge that whirls around us like a tornado, have we considered how significant, how incredibly special it is to study the things of God, our creator of heaven and earth, our master redeemer, our savior? 
I know what it's like to feel swamped and a little overwhelmed. And sometimes it can be hard to find a place or a purpose on how that paper or test fits in on God's will in your life. However, I have five suggestions on how to boast in God during your time here. My first point is thinking about who you are studying about. Does it ever occur to you that whether it is history, philosophy, Bible exposition, or counseling, even original languages, that it all has to do about God? It might sound redundant, especially in a Bible college, but I know what this is like. You look at a class, you read a title in a description, you see who's teaching it, and you walk into a classroom to talk about a specific topic. And before you know it, that class becomes a box where you just step in and out of that topic. And I'm not going to share which classes that was like for me, but <laughs> I would become a robot, reading the books, writing the papers, thinking about what purpose does this have for me now. And I so wish that I could go back in time and redeem all those classes because I realize now how purposeful they were. Some people may say the phrase, don't get lost in the forest for the trees. But if God is your focus in each classroom, you can never get lost. We lose focus when God isn't present in our studies or in our classroom. But when he is the source and reason for it all, you can walk through that forest all you want and just prepare to be marveled at the greatness of God. You can take classes with two mindsets. One is purely academic, or two, to make it relational. I could never become an academic student, and I, so I had to find some way to survive. And I did, by adding three years to a four-year degree. <laughs> <laughs> when I enrolled in 2009, NBC was a little bit of a different school. A lot is still the same. But there, was, but there was one thing that stayed that was consistent. And that was the relationships with the staff to the students. When I, when I was in the Bible college in 2009, um, yeah, it, the, there was no real accreditation. This was like a four-year degree that you would get. And the school has made such amazing steps to establish themselves, to be in... I don't know, just the accreditation process as a school. And it's an incredible thing, and it's a real blessing and honor that the board, the staff, and leadership have done. But they have kept the one thing the same, and that is relationships. You can sit in the back, you can do all your homework, you can ace the test, you can turn in the papers all you want. And I'm confident I can say this without Louis standing up. Ultimately, it is about your spiritual growth in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is how God shows himself to us, by using relationships and people around us to encourage us in our walk. Second point is to practice forgiveness with your roommates. Easier said than told. I will guarantee you with personal experience that five years from now, unless you haven't graduated yet, you will look back and audibly laugh at the reasons of conflict that incurred in your life. However, it is in those moments that we show, can tend to show how prideful we actually are because of how we reacted to those situations. During my first year here at NBC, I had a roommate that was pretty rough, to say the least. Um, he was a nice guy for most of the time, as 
I was, but we really got into it <laughs> certain moments. Spring was around the corner, and I just tried to stay out of his way. A year later, we weren't roommates anymore, but I approached him and did a first for me, and that was to ask forgiveness from him. I didn't tell him to ask forgiveness for me. I asked for his forgiveness. What made it hard <laughs> was the fact that he was the antagonist. He was the one that made things difficult in the first place, my point of view. But, how, but however, though, how else could you interpret when Jesus says, for if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This isn't a, a waiting game of, well, if they show that they're sorry, then I'll forgive them. Jesus says, for if you forgive people when they sin against you. It's not for necessarily when you sin against another person. It's when that other person sins against you. Do you have it in your heart to actually forgive them for what they've done? You have an opportunity as a roommate to practice biblical forgiveness. We will all make mistakes, say the wrong thing. We will all gossip and slander at times. But if we cultivate a forgiving heart to those that sin against us, all we are doing is becoming more like Christ, displaying how he forgives and how he forgave us. Make God great by making your relationships great. For some of you, you are only here for one year and others maybe for four years. Use the time you have to invest with those around you. And this doesn't mean to become everyone's best friend because frankly, that's impossible. But mark each year by being a good friend to those that are around you. To learn to listen, to encourage and build up. To study together. To just get together and talk about God and your testimonies. You won't find yourself in another situation like this, being surrounded closely with so many peers. It is a blessing, and you can be a blessing to those around you. I still have some Bible college friends that I'll see around Bozeman every so often, but I still try to treat them as close friends because of that one year we had together, sharing with one another, talking about theology and girls and other unimportant things. <laughs> My third encouragement to you is confessing sin. I'm going to tell you that what unconfessed sin does to you, it destroys you from the inside out. Sin is seeking to convince us that it's not that bad, while all the time it destroys our spirits. It makes it hard to read the Bible, to be around company, to sing praise songs. In general, it makes it hard to be a Christian. And as much of a spiritual incubator and time of growth that it is here, it is equally a spiritual battleground as well. To quote C.S. Lewis from the Screwtape Letters, he says, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And additionally, in Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, he talks about that since we Christians have a higher moral code than society, it makes it easier for us to justify our actions because, quite frankly, we're better than everyone else. The greatest mystery is the fact that we have been bought, redeemed, forgiven, received the Holy Spirit, and yet fight against the flesh. 
I really appreciate the young girl's honesty talking about guilt and shame up there. It is a marvel. It is a mystery why Christians, why those that have tasted, that have seen, that have felt God's presence, the power of forgiveness of sins, and yet the burden of guilt and shame is still there. And yet God does never, never wants us to stay in those places. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how when he was writing a letter and he's fearful of coming to them and he's wondering, am I going to be harsh? Am I going to be stern? Do I have to come down on you? And he says, I want to come in love. Give me a reason to just come in love to you. But then he also says, but yet your grief turned to repentance. You did not turn to worldly grief. God wants us to learn that one of the greatest freedoms in this life of being a Christian, and that is accepting and experiencing the freedom and the forgiveness of God's grace and his love. What this world, what our flesh, what sin wants to do is they want to take this guilt and they want to take this shame and they want to bury us with it. They want to hold us down with it. And this doesn't have to be anything drastic. Even in C.S. Lewis's quote in that letter from the uncle to his, to his nephew, that context of, of him talking about the safest road to hell is a gradual one. He was saying that murder is no different than, than playing cards, if playing cards is all it takes to bring someone down. I know I find myself gradually, you know, and this is a lot of my life before I became saved too, is you would find yourself doing something that you would never would dream of doing maybe earlier. But what sin does is that it slowly calluses you and it brings you down and it just slowly pulls you away. Where maybe if you were presented with a temptation that you would have been hard and fast and run away one, or run away quick with one, maybe now you are finding yourself slowly coming down that road. That's what happens when I don't stick to my script. I ramble a little bit. <laughs> Back to my notes. Back to say the greatest mystery is the fact that we have all been bought, redeemed, forgiven, received the Holy Spirit, and yet fight against the flesh. But there is one truth that gives me an answer of the question why. And in 1 Corinthians 10, God's word says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. God is sovereign, folks. You can't get around it. And he is sovereign over the little details of your life. Believe in the faithfulness of God Almighty and the temptation you face is not without divine assistance. God is so loving that he would never leave us or abandon us and even to provide the strength to endure it. The question is, are we enduring through sin or slowly trotting through it? The remedy of course, is seeking forgiveness from those you may have sinned directly against and ultimately seeking forgiveness from God. Unconfessed sin will tell your heart it is not worth the trouble bringing to the light. It is too shameful to mention. 
I think that I used to think that, <laughs> I think I used to think, proofread, <sighs> proofread, <laughs> Luis, right? I used to think that I was going to perfect my battle over sin once I win this battle, and then afterwards I'd move on to the next one. Little did I know that in no way would I ever reach perfection in my life, but one thing I can do consistently, and that is to try to have a humble heart in light of my sin. And I have found that true humility provides the strength to endure, provides the strength to confess, and paves the way to true freedom from sin. Sin will have you chained to dirt with no light of day, but having a humble heart will cause you to stand up and to walk out of that cell. Jesus says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Oftentimes, we have, we have daydreamed what it means to be used by God. And sometimes we compare it to something like a Billy Graham crusade, saving people by the thousands. But that quote there, Jesus says, when he says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God will never care how imperfect we are as long as we are humble. And when we're humble, God will do miraculous things in your life. Fourth point is to pray through hardships. Prayer is powerfully essential in making God great in your studies. And this is the one sentence my wife has not proofread for me. I am personally super close and calling prayer critically paramount <laughs> for the believer. Even in the three examples I've shared with you, none of those things would have ever come to fruition if prayer was absent. It was through prayer that I gave my life to Christ. It has been through prayer for me to come to Bozeman. It has been through prayer accepting my call to ministry. It has been through prayer that my relationship in God has been strengthened. I've had to pray my way through tests and papers. I've had to pray for those around me. I've had to pray for forgiveness. I felt God tug at my heart passionately, and I've been in his presence in prayer. It should be highly significant that the disciples asked Jesus bluntly, Lord, teach me to pray. Prayer is properly used when we place God higher up and when we place ourselves drastically lower. It is not a tool. It is not manipulation. It is pure relationship. If all you're doing is focusing on your studies to discover the person of God without cultivating a prayer life, then you're just going to become another textbook. You may speak the facts about who God is, but know very little of what he is like personally to you and how he knows you. Prayer brings us to the throne of grace, and prayer takes us to the altar of God. Prayer heals and mends relationships. Prayer is the outpouring of your heart in worship. It brings scripture to memory. Prayer cooperates with theology. Prayer endures temptations and is the pathway for repentance. Take this time to practice prayer. 
Listen to how you pray. And not just the words you do say, but also the ones you don't say. Be bold and courageous and honest and sincere in prayer. God's word says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Seek for that peace. My final point is to let God's glory be your foundational purpose. Think about your reasons for attending Bible college. How much of it was your choice? When I was growing up on a farm, um, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be the dairy farmer. And that's because my two older rebellious brothers ran away and went to do their own thing, and I was left to take care of the farm. And so I did. I was okay with it, but it was definitely just a job for me. I never had any passion in it, which is why I came to Montana. Basically, my parents sent me to Montana. They were like, we don't want you taking over the farm either. (laughs) If your heart's not in it, you'll put it in the ground. So go figure your life out. Went to, I attended a year at Montana World School of the Bible. And um, man, God changed my heart up there. It, it turned me around. He used that place, he used the people there to uh, reveal the most important thing in life. And that was relationship with him, first and foremost. And so, but during that time, I was making future plans. I still wasn't going to come take over the farm, so I was enrolled in different schools. Well, I was accepted in this one other school, and, and uh, state school in Pennsylvania, and um, I had some friends from that school from that year that were transferring down, and I was like, sure, I'll send an application. And it's like super late in the game. Um, and, uh, but just like how the timing of everything worked, I had one week to make a decision. And, this, and I had one week before, it was like before I would send like some like that big like non-refundable deposit to either schools. And I had to make a decision. And I was like, go to a state school or go back to, come back to Montana. And this was the literal thought process in my mind. This is exactly what it convinced me to come here. And it was, If God did this in my life in only six months' time, what would four years look like? Lo and behold, I needed more than four years to work on some stuff. (laughs) And I still do. But but think about your reasons for even coming here. And I'm not challenging them, and I'm I'm not critiquing them. But just think about why you're here. Think about why God wants you here, what you're learning here. If God's glory isn't enough for a motivation to pursue excellence in your time here, then how is it going to be enough for your future ministry? I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 10.31 the other day, which reads, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. And I was pondering how I have taken that verse to apply the small things of life. Maybe the things that I don't necessarily like doing, but it's for the ministry. 
like stacking chairs or, or doing whatever, some small volunteer service. And oftentimes I would convince myself that a volunteer work that wasn't fun or rewarding fell under the do it for God's glory category. What I discovered in my heart was that I would apply that verse to something that wasn't fun or difficult in an attempt to justify me being so selfless. The things that gave me the most attention, the most control, those were the things I'd be more prone to not do for God's glory. Yes, stack chairs for God's glory and proofread your papers for God's glory. <laughs> study for his glory as well. But not just study, but live for his glory. Almost all the questions that start with the question why, I believe can be answered with for the glory of God. I try to, con I, I still picture myself, um, you know, I graduated with the pastoral concentration and I wonder sometimes, you know, what my future ministry is going to be like. And I know God is, I'm a far ways away from God calling me, put place in me somewhere, but I think about this, this foundation, and I've experienced and, and thinking about what are, what are some of the things, like what makes church church? What makes ministry ministry? And does it, what does it boil down to? Like how easy it is to do things for, for men. How easy, it is, how easy it is to do things because of the expectation you may have put on yourself. Like, for me to think that I was going to be a dairy farmer my whole life. Putting that expectation on me because it was what I was expected out of me. But how to do things and how to prepare myself and to build a foundation on doing all things for God's glory. To establish a purpose in my life where it's more than just a vocational decision. decision but to have something that is deeply rooted with God's glory. And all of this truly relates to our text in Jeremiah 9. The more you learn about God should drive you to greater and greater worship of him. You will learn about him during your studies by being diligent and determined to do well. You will learn about him by practicing forgiveness, by experiencing what it means to forgive and be forgiven. You will learn about him by confessing your sin and repenting and to be strengthened by his love. You will learn more about him through prayer and relationship, being in tune with the harmony of God's will. And finally, you will learn about him by doing all things for his glory, and both the small and the big things in life. And there is more in life than just these five bullet points. And God has amazing surprises for you along the way. What more? do we have to boast in that God hasn't already given us right now? Close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time, for this morning. Just to meditate and to encourage with this text of boasting, Lord. God, may our lives be so centered around you that it is evident that it is obvious to those around us that we just focus on loving one another. We focus on just loving you 
and growing in you. And that during this time, just pray that you will just bless all of these students and the staff during this year and for the years to come. That you will just grant them your presence. That you will just grant them, Lord, of your knowledge. And that we may all just be drawn to you the more, all the more we learn about you. For the purpose, Lord, that we can only boast in you for every and all aspects of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.